Well, good morning, everyone. Hi, my name's Matt. I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church, and I'm excited to have you with us this morning. Uh, What a fun family event. If you haven't figured out the movie yet that's being talked about there, uh, you can talk to our member, Mike Waskowski, who's up doing children's church right now, and he'll tell you maybe a little bit more about what that movie is, a fun family event on that Sunday. Uh, My wife and I filled our day with different family events from people here in the church yesterday, and we went to an eight-year-old soccer game, and then we followed that up by going to a five-year-old soccer game. Then later on, we went to a two-year-old's birthday party. And on a day that was filled with eight-year-olds and five-year-olds and two-year-olds, we walked away and said, man, our, our dog is more work than any of these ages. Like, oh, man, she makes us, she gives us a run for the money. Uh, but it's so much fun to get together as families, and we have a chance to do that on that Sunday and spend some time playing together dog-free, entirely dog-free on that Sunday. We're in a sermon series that is called... Creation and the Cross, where we are looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and how it relates to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and our salvation. And today in that series, we are coming to an account that some of you may be familiar with about a guy named Noah and a boat and a lot of water. It's found in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, and we're going to be looking there today as we go through that. But as we launch into that account... I want us to acknowledge that there are a lot of people in our world and even some within churches who don't understand this account about Noah and a cataclysmic flood to be true. They understand that instead this is a mythological account, right? That's their understanding of it. It's a mythological account, a fictional account that teaches some sort of moral tale. But I want us to understand that the ancient literature supports this actually happening. Uh, And and it supports it actually happening in a strong way. There are over 500 mentions of a world-changing cataclysmic flood that occur in the ancient literature outside of the Jewish tradition and the biblical tradition. 500 other cultural references outside of the Jewish tradition to an ancient world-changing cataclysmic flood. Uh, For example, the Akkadian count of Isdubar and Sisset recounts humanity's wickedness, causing the gods to send a flood over the entire world. Only Sisset and his family were saved by building a boat and bringing in a collection of the world's animals. When the flood had covered all the mountains, Sisset released a dove and then a swallow and finally a raven to see whether dry land existed. The The boat ultimately landed on a peak in the Kurdish mountains. All of that probably sounds familiar to you. And there are a number of accounts that share many of the same details. This one is from 2300 BC in ancient Mesopotamia. How do so many different cultures all have similar stories about this? As a matter of fact, this cataclysmic world-changing flood was a big enough event that there are a number of cultures that mention it in their writings in the ancient world. For example, the Sumerian king's list. It's an inscription recounting the dynasties of the Sumerian Empire. It mentions a flood that swept over the earth. And then afterwards, they dated from the first kingdom, which was reestablished in Cush. Another ancient Babylonian king recorded that he loved to read the writings of the age before the flood. Another ancient Babylonian king named Assur-Banipal 
or something like that. He was a king in uh, 14th century BC Babylon, uh, founded a, a library in Nineveh, and there he referred to in his own writings inscriptions of the times before the flood. We have dozens and dozens of different mentions in ancient writings of some sort of cataclysmic, world-changing flood that are given to us and are outside of the Jewish tradition, outside of the biblical tradition that we have. Now today, we're going to look at the biblical account of what happened. It's found in Genesis 6 through 9. That's four chapters, and so we are not going to cover every word in every verse as we look at this account. But I want us to get the big picture. And as we look at the big picture of Noah and the boat and the waters, it is a big picture of sin and judgment and rescue. And I want us to celebrate and give thanks this morning as we look at this story of Noah and sin and judgment and rescue of the way that God has worked those things into our life. His amazing rescue from sin that has taken place in us. Let's make sure that we get back to Jesus and the impact that his salvation has had on us in all of this. When we begin to look at Genesis 6, the first thing that we notice is that we are dealing with a very different era here. The waters of the deep have not burst forth and made the changes that might come with that. All indications as we look at Genesis 2 through 6 is that it very well may not have rained in the way that we understand it at this point because the ground is being watered from beneath. Not only that, people are living to almost a thousand years of age. Can you imagine that? Living to almost a thousand years of age? People are having children at age 550. What? Just think about what that does for the world's population. When you have parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, great-great-great-great, all having kids at the same time. It's not one generation having kids at a time. All these generations are having kids at the exact same time. It is a very different era. And on top of all of that, look at what Genesis 6 says is going on. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There are a lot of interpretations of what is going on in this passage. And I really don't want us to get hung up on it because it is not the main thing that is being covered in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. But real quick, I think that the sons of God in this passage are actually angelic beings that are being disobedient to God and are having relations with human, human women. I say that because this particular phrase translated sons of God in the Hebrew is used five times in the Old Testament. Once here three times in Job and once in Daniel. And every time it appears, it's speaking of an angelic or spiritual being. And so I think that these are angels who are being disobedient to God and are then put in chains during this era and are spoken of in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and Jude, verse 6. These are the disobedient spirits who are in chains, I think, that are mentioned in those passages. We also see here a mention of the Nephilim. 
And what we know about the Nephilim is very little. They were people of renown. That is what we know for sure. There are some people who contend when it says that they were here before and after, that it means before and after this entire era that we're about to read with. And others who think it means before and after the sons of God and the daughters of men had relations. And it's fairly unclear. But we know that they were an ancient people of renown. I really don't want us to get caught up on the sons of God, the daughters of men, or the Nephilim, because that's not the main point of what Genesis 6 is saying. The main point that it is trying to get at is that people are sinful, and wickedness had spread and covered the entire face of the earth. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A few verses later. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Why was the earth filled with wickedness? Look back at Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. What does it say? It says, people had multiplied and filled the earth. And as people filled the earth, wickedness filled the earth. Because we as people are sinful. That isn't the way that God made us to be. If we go back a few weeks to Genesis chapter 1, we see that God made people to be in his image. We were to reflect God. God is loving and so we were to be perfect in love. And God is generous and so we were to be perfectly generous. And God is truth and so we were to be totally honest in all we did. But when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, we see an immediate breakdown or corruption of the image of God, don't we? Immediately they're lying and they're fighting and they're blaming each other just moments after that first sin. And, and what we understand is that people still have the image of God. We are unique in God's creation, but that that image of God that we have has been corrupted or rotted because of sin. I'd like to go back to an illustration here that Thomas Gold used when he was preaching here in May. I asked him to preach on the entire book of Genesis. And Thomas said, what? Are you kidding me? That's your assignment? You want me to preach on the entire book of Genesis in a Sunday? And I said, yes, you can do it. And he did it. And he did an amazing job. And during that time, he used an illustration about the image of God and asked people to imagine the image of God in people as a banana. Right, I, I have a banana here. I rode in with it this morning. It was so hard not to peel it open and eat it. Right? And, and that if you can imagine this banana as the way that God intended for people to be, totally, perfectly in his image, this banana better represents what happened to Adam after the first sin. Right? Uh, this banana has been corrupted. It, it's rotted. It might be good for banana bread. But that's a different illustration for a different time. Uh, I'll put that back so you don't have to look at it. Yeah, sorry, I can see a couple of you. Ew, get that out of here. Right. Is it still a banana? Yeah, it's, it's still a banana. But, but it's uh, corrupted in a sense. It's rotted in a sense. And, and in that way, do we still bear the image of God? Absolutely. God's going to affirm that at the end of this account that we still bear the image of God but not fully in the way that was intended. It is a, a corrupted image. 
It is a broken image and one that Christ has to restore in us through salvation. Genesis chapter 5 uh, is a long list, a genealogy. Uh, if you looked at Genesis chapter 5, it's so-and-so beget, so-and-so who beget, so-and-so. And sometimes when we get to those lists, we're like, oh, genealogy, okay, what's in Genesis chapter 6? Right? Come on now. Some of you do that. <clears throat> okay, we all do that at times, right? But what's the point of Genesis chapter 5? That whole genealogy, one of the primary points is to help us understand that the sin problem that took place in Adam is getting passed down from generation to generation to generation. If we look at just the first three verses of Genesis 5, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Adam was originally designed totally and perfectly in the image of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. But then Adam sinned. There was this brokenness and this rot. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own image, after his image, and named him Seth. All right, after his likeness, after his image. God's design was that people would pass down this perfect image of God, but because of the rot of sin, instead, when Adam began to have children, what got passed down? That, that rotted or corrupted image of God. So that the sins of great-grandparents get passed down to grandparents, get passed down to parents, get passed down to children. Anyone ever witness this in your family? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. God made people to be in his image, but what gets passed down is the sinful, broken, and corrupted image. This is why a two-year-old will receive a, a perfectly logical, straightforward set of instructions from their parents and look at them and say, no. This is why a, a husband and wife will gather after busy days and come together and instead of thinking about, how can I serve you tonight, say, shouldn't you be doing this for me? This is why people will reject others or mistreat others based solely on their skin color. This is why people will kill unborn babies because they're to be born at an inconvenient place in life. This is why people go out and talk about their coworkers behind their back because of this sin issue that gets passed down from person to person to person. People are sinful. And when God's Spirit begins to work in our lives to bring us towards salvation in Jesus Christ, the first thing that God's Spirit does is He convicts our minds and our hearts about our own sinfulness. He shows us the desperation of our own situation, our need. That is the first step that God's Spirit works into our lives as He brings us to this place of salvation. He breaks our hearts. He breaks us over our own sin in light of the holiness of God. We are a sinful people, and that is on display in Genesis chapter 6. But the second thing that we see is how God treats sin. Genesis chapter 6 verse 13, we see that God judges sin. And friends, I want us to understand God judges sin with punishment every time it happens. Let me say that again. God judges sin with punishment every time it happens. And that happens here in Genesis 6.13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. There are times in the biblical account where God brings justice. He brings judgment and punishment on people on the earth as a reminder that ultimately punishment will be coming on the day of judgment for sin. In a few chapters, we see that with a couple of cities called Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. Are they the only wicked cities ever in the history of humanity? No, absolutely not. But they're a reminder to people that ultimately all sin will be punished. And the ultimate example of God punishing people here on the earth is, of course, with this flood. As followers of Jesus, we recognize that God's punishment for sin usually does not come on this earth. That the New Testament teaches us that God is patient and long-suffering towards sin. He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. What our sins deserve is immediate physical, spiritual, and eternal death. But God doesn't give us that the first time we sin. Instead, he is patient, long-suffering, so that we will be a people who repent and come to him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 lists a bunch of different sins. And then Colossians 3, 6 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, future tense. The wrath of God is coming. Our next study after this is going to be on the book of Romans, which in the first few chapters has a fair amount to say about the wrath of God, the punishment of God that is coming because of people's sin. I want us to understand that every time there is sin, there is punishment from God. Now we're going to see in just a second, someone has taken that punishment for us. God is not an unjust judge who just turns a blind eye to sin and says, oh yeah, go ahead, whatever, do whatever. No, no, sin must be punished and he punishes that sin. The gospel isn't that God says, eh, let's just forget about it. The gospel is that he punished that sin on someone else instead of on you. Because God judges sin each and every time. And when the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives to draw us towards the salvation of Jesus Christ, the first thing that he does in our life, he gives us a deep sense of brokenheartedness and guilt about our own sin in front of a holy God. The second thing that he does is he brings the reality to our hearts and minds of the judgment of God towards that sin. That there is a genuine fear that takes place in our life because of God's judgment towards that sin. And as, we are, as our lives are being worked in by the Holy Spirit in order to draw us into relationship with Jesus, he starts with those things. Right? A, a reality, the reality of our sin, guilt about our sin, and then secondarily, the reality of judgment towards that sin and God's punishment towards that sin. But he doesn't leave us there, does he? Uh, because ultimately, those who are saved recognize God has a plan for rescue. Is there sin? Is there punishment? Yes, but God has a plan for rescue. For Noah, that's in Genesis 6.14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. God is going to destroy the wicked world around, but he is going to save this one family through this really large boat. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. And he is going to tell Adam, or Adam, he's going to tell Noah to bring all of his family on. And then once he gets all of his family on, he's also to bring two of every kind of animal. 
except the ones that are clean and good for food. He's supposed to bring seven of those. Wow, what are they going to use those for? Delicious. Right? Two of every kind of animal, but seven if they're good for food. And they're to all go and get on this boat. And this is God's rescue plan for Noah, for his family, and for humanity. As followers of Jesus, we recognize uh, that we have an even greater rescue plan, right? That the very Son of God came down, lived a perfect life, went to the cross on our behalf. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we could be declared righteous before God our judge. That we could have new life in him. And thanks to that ark of Jesus' death and resurrection, thanks to that rescue plan that God has for us, we can now remember and proclaim the gospel of rescue to ourselves each and every day, right? And we want to do that. If you're a follower of Jesus every day, you want to proclaim to yourself the gospel truth that there is no more condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. You want to proclaim the gospel truth to yourself that you've been made new. The old has passed away, right? But the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You want to proclaim the gospel truth to yourself that there is nothing, not even death, that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, your Lord, Romans 8.39. You want to proclaim these gospel truths of rescue over your own life each and every day. And they remind us of our own sin, but they remind us of the amazing goodness of God and the rescue that he's given to us in the middle of that. As we continue to look at uh, Noah, we see that not only does God have a plan of rescue, but God's plan for rescue is through faith in him. Noah is called to believe that a flood is coming upon the world, and as far as we can tell, he has never experienced any sort of flood. He has no frame of reference for any of this. And, and God tells him to build this giant boat and that there's going to be animals that get on it. And Noah's got to say, wait, I don't, I don't have some sort of telepathy control over these animals. I don't have some sort of land-based Aquaman or something that can control all of these animals. What am I supposed to do here? There's a lot that's out of his control. And a lot that uh, he doesn't have any reference for. And yet, what does Noah do? He believes God. He has faith in God, doesn't he? God calls us to live lives of faith in his rescue promises. He has promised to rescue you through the work of Jesus Christ, and he's promised that he'll bring it to completion, right? He who began a good work in you is going to do what? He's going to carry it through to the day of completion, isn't he? He's not going to just leave you in justification. He's going to bring you through in order that you might be sanctified and ultimately one day that you'll be glorified with him. And we place our faith in those good promises of God. Recognize that God's design for faith is that it would always be rooted in the promises of God as its foundation. Right? God's design for our faith is that it would always be rooted in the promises of God. Sometimes people treat faith as some sort of magic formula that you can use in order to get whatever you want in life. If that was true, then I would have done it differently if I was Noah. I would have had faith that God was going to rain down meat from the sky so that we could have a big barbecue. Or I would have had faith that God would cause gold to bubble up from the fountains of the deep so that I could be really, really rich. 
I would have done something different if faith was simply a magic formula that I could use in order to get whatever I want or make my life more comfortable. But Noah understands he must have faith in the what? The promises of God. And what God has promised is that a flood is coming and that he can save him through this ark. The same is true with us. The foundation of our faith is the promises of God. And so we should probably work at becoming very acquainted with the promises of God if that is what we're to have faith in. We should make sure that we are regularly looking at God's promises and what applies to us so that we can place our faith in those things. He has promised to rescue his children from judgment and bring them through if they have faith. And we have faith in that. We also see from Noah's life that true faith leads to obedience. True faith leads to obedience. Noah believed God's promise that a flood was coming and that he was supposed to build a great big boat. And because he believed that, what did he do? He built a boat. Would we believe it if Noah said to God, I believe you. I believe that you're going to flood the world. And I believe that this ark is my salvation. And then never bothered to build the boat. But instead went about raising animals and raising crops and training show ponies or whatever his life was about before that? No, we wouldn't believe that. Because a genuine belief always leads to a changed life. And that is certainly true for those of us who are followers of Jesus. That's why James chapter 2 says, faith without works is what? Dead, that's right. Faith without works is dead. Because when we have a genuine faith, a genuine belief in our life, it changes the trajectory of our life. It changes so that we become obedient to God in what we do. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, you can tell who are my disciples because they are the ones who follow my commandments. And why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why is that? Because a genuine faith is always proven true by a life that is transformed. A genuine faith is always proven true by obedience. And that is what we see with Noah here. Uh, our obedience is evidence that we have a genuine faith in Jesus. True faith leads to obedience. We also see with Noah, God has a covenant with the saved. God has a covenant. With those that he saves, he has entered into a covenant. That covenant with Noah is established in Genesis chapter 9. There's a little bit of preamble to the covenant at the end of chapter 8, and actually a little preamble to the covenant at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9. We see in Genesis 9, 1 through 4, that God says, Noah, I want you and your family to make sure that you are being obedient to my Genesis 1 command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's get back about that business. And then in verses 5 through 9 of Genesis 9, he says, and I want to remind you that people are made in my image. And so you can go ahead and kill any animals you want in order to eat them for food. That's fine. But you are never to take the life of your fellow human being. You are not to kill your fellow people because they are made in my image and they have a unique and intrinsic value that is different than the animal kingdom. 
Then after those reminders, God enters into the covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. If you look back just a few verses to chapter 8, verse 22, God says, as long as the earth lasts, the seasons will continue. Life will continue on as long as the earth lasts. This is his covenant with those who were saved from his judgment. And we recognize as followers of Jesus that there is a covenant that we have entered into. As those who have been saved from the judgment of God, we have entered into a covenant often referred to as a new covenant. We see in Ezekiel chapter 36 that this is a covenant in which we get a new heart and a new spirit. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 22 that this covenant is enacted through what he did. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. God gives us a new heart in the new covenant. It's a heart that wants to follow after him. It's a heart in the new covenant that desires to be obedient to him. Does that mean we always are? Our desire is always to be obedient to him. There are times that we don't do what we wish we did, and other times we do what we wish we didn't, Romans chapter 7. But our heart's longing is to follow after him and be obedient to him. He's given us a new heart in this new covenant. Not only that, we get a new spirit, we're told. An indwelling Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God dwells in us and then strengthens us to be obedient to those desires of the new heart that we have received. We have entered into a new covenant with God. Now you may say, I don't deserve a covenant with God. Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've been a part of in my life? Do you know what I think about? Or do when no one is around? And the good news is, God's covenant is in no way based on your perfection. Right? God's covenant isn't even based on your goodness. <laughs> we see that it's not based on perfection. At the end of Genesis chapter 9, what is Noah and his sons doing by the end of Genesis chapter 9? Noah's so drunk he doesn't know what's going on. And one of his sons comes in and does something inappropriate in his tent and views him in a way that was inappropriate. And then he and the boys have all sorts of family conflict about it. This is the righteous family on the earth. And they're a mess. And it's a reminder to us, as you walk through the rest of Genesis and God's chosen family, what are you going to see? Mess upon mess upon mess. It is a giant ball of dysfunction as we read through the book of Genesis. And it's a constant reminder to us the covenants aren't based on your goodness. They're based on his grace. They're not based on your good. I love Genesis chapter 8, the second half of verse 21. If you look at the second half of verse 21 in Genesis chapter 8, there is this amazing passage where God is getting ready to proclaim uh, his covenant, and he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. What does God say here? He says, I will never again uh, curse humanity and end life because 
I have a strong belief that people are just going to get better. Nope, that's not what he says, is it? He says, I'll never again curse the ground. I'll never again bring humanity to an end like this because I think that while they do some things that are a little wrong on the outside, their hearts are really good. Nope, that's not what he says either. What does God say? God says, I am making a covenant never to destroy the world like this again and the intention of people's hearts is wicked. But my covenant isn't based on them being good enough. My covenant is a covenant of grace. Yes, the intentions of the heart are selfish. The intentions of the heart are evil. God says, my covenant's not based on you getting good enough. My covenant is based on my grace. As we read further into Genesis chapter 9, we find that God provides a symbol of remembrance for this covenant that he enters into with Noah. If you've got a kid's ministry bag, then you might be coloring in the rainbow that's on the very back of those pages right now. Because what is that symbol? Right? God says, I'm going to provide this rainbow and it is going to be a constant remembrance of this covenant that I've entered into with you. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus had given us a symbol of remembrance of the covenant that we enter into with him? Wouldn't that have been nice? Yeah, I hear, I hear young people correcting me. He did! Yeah, that's right, he did. Right, this cup, right, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance of what he's done and the covenant that we've entered into with him, this amazing covenant of grace. And so we want to participate in this covenant remembrance today. We're going to take the bread and take the cup. The worship team is going to uh, come back up and, and help us to spend a little bit of time focusing our hearts and minds. And I would invite you to just spend a little bit of time with the Lord, remembering his amazing covenant blessings towards you. Remembering his plan for rescue in your life. Remembering the way that he's rescued you from sin and from punishment and all that he has done in order to make that possible. And then when you're ready, go ahead and make your way over to the table and grab those elements and then you can return to your seats and after a couple of songs, I'll lead us all as we take those elements together.